You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good to see you all. And uh, this morning we're going to be back in the epistle to the Philippians. So if you would turn there and turn to chapter 2, I want to just pick up the context of where Paul is writing with urgency to these Philippian believers and his joy for these believers was expressed early on in this epistle. Though he is in prison, he has received word from a courier and one of the members of the body, one of the leaders in the body of Philippi, came to him at great cost, physically, and brought the message of encouragement to Paul. There was one caveat, however, that is, Paul was disturbed by the report that there was some contention amongst them. And in this second chapter, Paul's wanting to urge them to live in unity. Why? Because he wants to bring this body together that they might be humbled and that they might represent the body of Christ in an honorable way without having conflicts amongst them. So as we open this, let's go to the Lord and open prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revealed word. We thank you that you are sovereign over all. You are the creator, sustainer, and you are the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you for the revelation that you've given us of your word. And once again, we come to you and ask that you would open our eyes to enable us by your Holy Spirit to have understanding of this passage, which you have inspired your servant Paul to pin. We ask, Father, that through all this, that we not only understand these important truths, but also by your grace and empowered by your spirit, may we apply these truths to our lives to live out our faith in a way that would bring honor to your name. We ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to read to you um, all the way back up to verse 7, <clears throat> excuse me, 6, yea, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For by this, God also, <clears throat> for this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a marvelous text. As we look at this text, we have to understand that we have limited or finite understanding. And yet, the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is one in which we must believe, though we may not have full comprehension of this great miracle of God in which God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, condescended to this earth and became man, not setting aside his deity, though limiting, while here on earth, some of his attributes in their practice. So as we look at this, we see a perfect, absolute, supreme example of humility. There is no other example that Paul could have given to model what Paul was trying to urge these Philippian believers to participate and practice in their daily lives as they brought forth the gospel and lived out the gospel in Philippi. So when we look at this, we want to look at a few areas of this text and try to go a little bit deeper to understand what exactly did Christ do? How did he do it? How did he accomplish it? And for what purpose? So I'm going to pick up in verse 6 of chapter 2. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard a quality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when we see this text, perhaps one question that we need to uh, answer is, what did Christ empty himself of? When he came here, born of a virgin, lived a sinless and perfect life, suffered and died, and then rose from the dead, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. In what way did Christ empty himself? And what did he empty himself of? It wasn't his deity. He did not set aside his deity, although he did not think that's something that he had to hang on to and uh, try to defend. He didn't deny that he was God. There are many passages in the gospel in which God 
admitted and proclaimed that deity. And that is why the Pharisees hated him and wanted to put him to death. And eventually, using the judicial system of that time, they brought him to trial, and ultimately, he was crucified. So what exactly did Christ empty himself of? He, prior to his incarnation, he coexisted with the Father and the Spirit. For him to become less than God would mean that the Trinity would not have existed, and that's impossible. God has always been and always will be. One of the attributes of the God that we serve, the triune Godhead, is that of their eternality. There wasn't any beginning for God. He didn't become God, or he wasn't God and then entered a man's body. No, he was fully God and fully man, complete with all the attributes of God and all the attributes of man. As a man, he could suffer, he could be hungry, he could feel pain, sorrow, and feel all that mankind, his creation, felt and went through. So we might ask, how, in what way, did he give up or empty himself of what did that consist of? What Christ left was this. He left the glory of heaven, the glory of fellowship with the Father, the glory of being praised by the angels and served by the angels, being able to oversee his creation in fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So he set that aside for this period of his incarnation. He did so to obedience to the Father. Now, as Cornell has been going through uh, the book of Corinthians, it was very essential to understand when he delineated the essence of that of submission and authority. And that wasn't something that just happened during the time of the New Testament. That, from eternity past, is in which God modeled it. Where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were co-equal in all ways. And yet, God the Father foreordained the plan. God the Son submitted to the Father's will came here willfully to live, to be born as a man, to live a life here on earth, suffer and die, and then be resurrected. As we see this, we see this balance between the equality of God and the submission one to another. That is modeled out and done for us also to picture us and the way God created this authority and also submission to be principles of Scripture. So he renounced his privileges, Christ, here on earth. He renounced his heavenly glory. He, did give up, he didn't give up his glory. 
In John 17, Jesus prays, Glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had before the world was. That's in John 17, 5. Christ gave up the glory of face-to-face relationship with God the Father to come to this wicked and sinful world. Now, Christ is the creator of all things. We saw that as Cornell went through the epistle of Colossians. We see it replete in scripture. And yet, the creator God comes to earth to be a servant to those he created. Now, we pointed this out last time, but the concept carries over to this mandate and this admonition that Paul gives the Philippian saints. He wants them to think of others as more important than themselves. He wants them to live this out in a way that can bring glory to God. The nature of man, because of our depravity, is that of self-service. Do we see that today? Are people humble that are leaders? Are they wanting to do it quietly? Are they wanting to be vocal and have attention brought to themselves and to be lifted up? That is the pride of man. And that was demonstrated all the way back in Genesis at the fall. The very first and only commandment given to the first created beings, Adam and Eve, one commandment was given, and that one commandment was disobeyed, bringing sin upon Adam and Eve, and as a result, all mankind. Throughout human history, we have the essence of depravity. And the only savior from the sin that we all are accountable for is that of Jesus Christ paying the penalty for the sin of all those who turn to him for forgiveness and salvation by his grace and through believing faith. So Christ has provided the way of salvation. Christ has provided the way of forgiveness. And Paul wants to lift this up, but he wants to point to Christ, the God-man, to bring that example that we should all be living out. We should be showing this deference and this humility one towards another. This isn't something that we summon up by our own strong will because we would fail. We all know that it's by the power of God's Spirit to do so. So we back to what Christ has renounced. He's renounced his authority. Christ emptied himself of his independent authority. He completely submitted himself to the will of the Father and learned to be a servant. Now, that's a difficult uh, text to try to understand. Um, Philippians 2.8 says that he was obedient to death on a cross. Matthew 26.39 says, Not as I will, but thou will, as thou will. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Christ is omniscient. He knows all things. That's true. He is 
supreme. He is supreme uh, and omniscient. He knows all things. He's created all things. He understands all things. But he did not experience the physical life of the Creator. He was the Creator, and yet he did not experience as the Creator, as God, what man goes through. So coming here on earth, he experienced that in a way where he demonstrated his submission and his obedience in a perfect, sinless life here on earth. <clears throat> the other thing he set aside was the divine prerogatives of his deity, the voluntary display of his attributes. He knew what was in man, as John 2.25 points out. He was omnipresent, though not physically present. He saw Nathaniel under the tree in John 1.45-49. He didn't give up his deity, but he did give up the free exercise of his attributes. As we know, God has numerous attributes. Some theologians say there were 12 definitive attributes. Some say 17, some say 20. God limited his attributes to just that which he exercised to reveal his deity, but also to accomplish the goals that he had as the God-man here on earth. So he didn't exercise all of his attributes. He limited himself voluntarily and purposely. He gave up his eternal riches. Though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty he might become rich. That's in 2 Corinthians, which in chapter 8, verse 9, uh, that'll probably be being taught by Cornell in three or four years, maybe. Or if he, he's a little faster than I am, but not much. As we look at this, though Christ renounced all these privileges, he never ceased to be God. He could have done anything to his enemies, but he voluntarily limited himself. He could have protected himself. He, called, he could have called a legion of angels to protect him. But yet, he voluntarily came here. He was spit upon. He was cursed. He was scorned. He was tortured and ultimately crucified. He did so knowing full well what he would go through. He came here as a servant. That's what Paul is pointing to in this text. He, again, is not trying to bring forth a, theolo a theological treatise uh, on who Christ is. Yet, many theologians, many uh, students in seminary have made their thesis on this one text. Because, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, this is probably one of the greatest texts in all of Scripture. Now, we say that about every passage that we go to. But the reason that Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this is because this was necessary. It was necessary for the God-man to suffer for the penalty of sins for all those who trust him for salvation. 
It had to be a perfect sacrifice to pay for sin. It couldn't be a man. It couldn't be a prominent figure in Scripture. It had to be God himself. So that's why D. Martin Lloyd-Jones points this out. Had Christ not come here as man, lived a sinless life, and suffered and died for our sin, it couldn't have transpired. We'd have been lost in our sin for all eternity. No way of paying for that sin. Yet Christ came here in submission to the Father to accomplish that. He did so, and did so as a preeminent plan before all creation. Now, then it goes on, and it tells us that although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this we looked at previously, the last time uh, we were in this section of the text, we looked at this word form because it's used twice, and yet the original meaning is different. There's two usages of form in the Greek. This one uh, is referring to that of morph. And morph in this context means that Christ was there and his essence, his total being, which never changed, was that of God. So he was here on earth, in the form of God, and that never changed. Because he took on and became man, it didn't diminish his deity at all. Only he, by his own will, limited the attributes which he exercised. But it did not alter the form or the essence of who Christ is, that he is the eternal God, the Son of God, the second member of the triune Godhead. So that word, morph, was used in the first part. Now it's interesting, I pointed that out because Paul pulls out another word later on in the next verse for form. That's the word schema. That form is a changing form. The first one, morph, was that of a person's essence. That doesn't change. We're born in the human race. We are humans throughout our lives. And nothing changes in that essence of a man or a woman. The other word is schema. And that word for form has the meaning of changing. Though Christ didn't change in his essence, he changed from an infant to a child, to an adult, and that form was changing before man, an evident form. So these are the two that Paul refers to in this text. At first glance, it sounds like repetition to appear as a man. The difference between them is the shift in focus. Here we view the humiliation of Christ from the viewpoint of those who saw him. Christ was God-man, But as people looked at him, they saw the appearance, the schema, the outward form of man. 
MacArthur gives an interesting comment in his commentary on Philippians in this text. He uses the example of a man by the name of Eric Liddell. Some of you may have seen years past uh, a movie, uh, Chariots on Fire. It depicted a man uh, from Scotland who was a runner, a distance runner, who in 1924 entered the Olympics. Now this man won the gold medal. He was depicted in this film as a committed Christian. And historically, after the Olympics, after he had won that gold medal, he gave all the glory to God for that. He ran uh, for God's pleasure. He did so to honor God. And when he completed this Olympic effort, he then entered the mission field in China, in which he served as a missionary to China. During that time, he was incarcerated and put in prison. He suffered torture and all kinds of ill treatment. And one of the inmates whom he ministered to said something happened when he was tortured and succumbed and died. He said at his funeral or at his service there within prison, he learned something that he never knew all the time that he knew Eric Liddell. He knew him as a missionary, a servant of Christ. Never once mentioned that he was also a gold medalist. So oftentimes we'll see somebody and not know who they are. And Paul, was, he used that as an illustration of this, though he was not trying to compare deity with the uh, essence of man. He was simply saying, we look at people on the surface, and yet sometimes we don't know who they are. That was the case when God incarnate was here on earth in his earthly ministry. They saw Christ as a man. Now, what did he do in the way of his attributes? Well, we know he healed people, healed the sick. He was able to understand the hearts of man, know the sinfulness of man, and exercise that portion of his divine essence of knowing all things. He was omniscient. And yet he limited that even later on in his ministry. He says, for I do not know the day or the time of the return, of the return. So he limited himself in that uh, omniscience during the portion of time of his earthly ministry, intentionally. So as God omniscient, he still didn't exercise that fully. At Christ's trial, he did not say a word in his own defense. He bore unbelievable humiliation. They mocked him, they punched him, they tortured him, they pulled out his beard, treated him as filth, but he did not say a word. He humbled himself. He was mocked. He was forced to walk a path to Jerusalem only clothed in a loincloth. He was crucified, 
and obedient to point of suffering, humility, and death to bring out us from death into life by his sacrifice. So even a death on a cross, Christ suffered not just death, but death on a cross. That was the most humiliating form of killing, uh, and it was used, and it was actually initiated by the Persians and adopted by the Roman Empire. And it was used for the most vile criminals and usually for murderers or vile criminals. They would use this form of punishment. And how heinous it was, we even look back in the Old Testament, and Deuteronomy 21-23 says this, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So God willfully undertook this curse by taking upon himself and paying for the punishment of sin for all those who place their faith in him. The Puritan... <clears throat> As we look at this, we I made a quote from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He said this, Love is humble grace. It does not walk around in state. It will creep upon its hands. It will stoop and submit anything whereby it may be serviceable to Christ, end quote. The love of Christ was such that he humbled himself enough to die on a cross, being obedient he brought salvation to man. Question is, this command form that Paul urges the believers to do or exercise of humility, are we exercising that humility? Some have tried to say, well, I, I really, I'm, I'm not really a humble person and feigning humility, but we're commanded. This is in a command form. Paul issues this command to humble you, follow Christ, follow his example, the supreme example of humility. So it's uh, by God's grace, and yet we are called and commanded to do so. It isn't something we can just look at and say, well, I hope I'm humble someday and can be humble towards my brother. No, you're commanded. This isn't something that you cannot do you cannot do it in your own strength, but we are able by God's grace and his empowerment to exercise humility. That is, and Paul put this in context, to consider others is more important than ourselves. How often do we miss that opportunity? Uh, I'm talking universally here for man, not pointedly to us, but all men have this essence as believers, that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And the only way that we can have victory in this is that of submission to God's Holy Spirit, to be able to be willing to live in the power of God's Spirit. Paul points that out in Galatians. Uh, he said, we're not to fulfill... We're to be walked by the Spirit so that we not, will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the only victory we have. That is, walking by the Spirit, by God's empowerment, submitting ourselves to His Word. 
That is what God's called us to. Love of Christ was such that he humbled himself even enough to die on the cross. We briefly considered the humiliation of Christ, but as we take a closer look, we look at this whole passage, and many theologians have entitled this passage in context, the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's what the context contains. The humiliation being God coming here to earth as a man. That condescension, that is the humiliation of Christ. Not only coming here, but suffering from the very human beings that he created and placed on this earth. Willfully submitted himself to that put himself in subjection to all kinds of ridicule and punishment. 19th century, there was a missionary by the name of Henry Martin. He was speaking with a Muslim whom he was trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Muslim spoke back and he declared, <clears throat> he started slighting Christ to this missionary. And the missionary's response, and this man by the name of Henry Martin, said this, quote, I could not endure the existence, my existence, if Jesus were to always be dishonored. In other words, this man's love for Christ was so great that he couldn't bear to even have an unbeliever tear him down. Though he had a love and compassion for the lost, he hated the aspect of someone lifting up this holy name and mocking it. How often do we see that today? Publicly mocking or using the name of Jesus Christ in vain. What does that do to our hearts? It, it vexes our spirit. It pains us when anyone whether we have opportunity to share with those individuals because they're haters of God. They don't know God. And that's all they know is self-serving and yet hating the very God who created them and provided a way of salvation. So when we look at this missionary, it's likened to David in Psalm 69.9. He says this, The reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David hated it when somebody disparaged God. He loved God. Did he fail? Yes, he did. But he was repentant. And God used him, regardless, even though he was a great, had fallen greatly. After he was repentant, God had to bring somebody alongside to even cause that. But ultimately, he was a servant of God. Nothing else in history could possibly match the scorn and humiliation that fallen and sinful and rebellious men have inflicted upon God's Son during his incarnation, which we've just considered in brief. In the next three verses, we see the second half of Paul's depiction of Christ as magnificent 
exaltation that the Father bestowed upon him. When we look at verse 9, Paul says this, For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name. Now, when we think of that, Paul's depiction of Christ, he pulled this out from Scripture. We have to think of something here that is extremely important. We have to understand the terminology. Uh, Christ, Jesus Christ, was called Jesus Christ. But during the course of his obedient service here on earth, in his willful submission even to death, he was given the name Lord. He didn't become Lord. He was always Lord. But he's now called by believers the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we understand who that is truly? What he did on our behalf? How he provided that way in which he himself came here physically? Lived this perfect life? And was willing to humble himself in this way? Do we understand that? Well, that's the example that Paul brings us to. Now, this magnificent exaltation that the Father bestows upon him portrays the wonderful way of the depth of his condescension and the height of his exaltation. Coming to earth as a man, though he remained God, then upon his death, he is resurrected. In the author of Hebrews, it says this, It was because of the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat at the right hand of the throne of God. That's in Hebrews 12.2. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.11, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Old Testament prophets studied the writings, even their own writings. Though they believed that they were going to be saved from their sin by faith through the sacrifice that God would provide, they couldn't fully understand who Christ was though they knew God was going to provide a Savior, a lamb, a spotless lamb for sacrifice, they didn't quite understand that of Jesus Christ. They knew that there was a promised Messiah, yet they didn't know how or what manner this was going to come in. In the person of Jesus Christ. I can't see what time it is here. Is that 10, 10? 10, 10? Okay. I want to point this out because it's essential for us to understand. These prophets of God in the Old Testament were truly desiring to know what manner God was going to use to bring forth a Messiah that would be the Savior of all mankind or provide the way of salvation presented to man, the opportunity 
to be saved from their sin. These were faithful men. In some cases failed and yet were repentant and still used of God. A while back, we looked in the first, in the first portion of Philippians in 1 through 4, where Paul establishes the practical result of believers following the Lord's example of humility in the church. And we read in the first four verses, Paul had begun this epistle by saying this, to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers, deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for all of you. Paul knew the importance of that intercessory prayer. We are to also practice that as we intercede for one another. We often, you know, have prayer chains and we respond to those urgent needs in prayer. But are we constantly in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we constantly examining ourselves before God and coming to a place of repentance when we sin or fail to obey God. God wants us to practice this regularly. We do so in obedience to his word. Today we have a culture that's full of pride and self-elevation, and that went on throughout all of human history. As Jim is going through Ecclesiastes, we can't help but see what contrast there is from viewing the worldview from biblical viewpoint or God's viewpoint and the human viewpoint. Man's tendency and his nature, because he has fallen, is prideful. As a Christian, we are able, by God's grace, to humble ourselves. And that is what Paul is pointing us towards. <clears throat> Matthew brings out clear depiction of this when he quotes, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And yet in contrast to that, in Peter, 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves under the hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Though we are to humble ourselves as God works in this and through this, he will at the proper time exalt us and bring us in glory with the Father Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's stop here. I, I thank you for the sacrificial effort to come here on Sunday school, to Sunday school. But as we come here, we have to recognize when we focus on God's word, we do so not just to bring forth principles, but we are trying to bring forth the exposition of God's word to understand it more fully, but also that of putting in practice. That is the goal of the ministry of this body. We do so to God's glory. Our response is how we handle God's word. So as we look at this principle of humility, I want to urge you or exhort you to consider how important this is in our daily lives and by God's grace to practice this to his glory. Father, we thank you for your word once again. We thank you for your grace of being able to appropriate forgiveness and repentance 
and also to empower us to live for you. I pray that we might be able to practice this principle of humbling ourselves and to consider others as more important than ourselves. We do so in obedience to your word and in submission to your word. We do so by your grace and for your glory. And we ask now that you would continue to bring forth your word to edify us, to reprove and correct us, and instruction, to give us instruction for righteousness and practice. Thank you, and I praise you and ask this to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.